Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. You know why? Why? Because you're going to tell me, you're going to make sense of that crazy argument that happened in October of last year that you were trying to help me make sense of before with the Supreme Court cases. Sorry, I know we're leaping right in, but I'm excited about this one because this is that you had to explain to me why the students were mad about the admissions policies at Harvard and UNC. And it wasn't because they weren't getting into the school. Well, some of them, it was because they weren't getting into the school, but it was, remember when you, you were trying to explain to me how the universities were saying diversity, trust us, right? Like, but they couldn't define what diversity meant. They couldn't define what they were going after. Well, apparently the judges felt pretty strongly. Pretty strongly uh, about that. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, to start off our third episode of our um, Supreme Court wrap-up, uh, Summer of SCOTUS, um, we're going to lead off um, with the two um, uh, university affirmative action uh, program cases. And as Nia mentioned, um, uh, an interest group, Students for Fair Admissions, um, um, uh, uh uh, challenged uh, the uh, admissions uh, policies, okay, of right. uh, Harvard College, which is, um, I'm going to go ahead and explain it because this is what we do on this podcast. But I think most, you know, listeners would probably know that Harvard is uh, one of the most prestigious, but albeit private, higher education institutions in the United States, right? Right. Whereas the University of North Carolina, okay, is one of the uh, most uh, prestigious public universities in the United States, okay? Right. And the flagship university of, of uh, North Carolina. Carolina, okay. Even though I went to state and UNC sucks. <laughs> but, but, and I mean that in most loving ways. Go Pat. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, 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 for listeners, both Nia and I are um, <clears throat> listeners can't see it, but I'm doing the wolf pack symbol with my hand. Yeah, she is. Um, and listeners, Nia and I both went to institutions um, that have significant rivals within their states. Okay. I mean, I went to Virginia Tech, for instance, for my master's and my PhD. So anytime somebody says, I got my degree from UVA, I'm just like, loser. No, I, I, <laughs> right. Yeah, but that's us being, you know, juvenile schools. Yeah, and yes. juvenile. Uh, yeah, and juvenile. juvenile. Both, yes. both. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the main crux of the issue, if I recall correctly, and you you need to correct me if I'm wrong, was that uh, students were saying that if you use admissions requirements to to admit a diverse population of students you are by doing that keeping out certain students and it wasn't that they were it's not a black white issue literally right correct 
it's yeah. also Native Americans. It's also Pacific Asian Americans. Right? Like it's there's all sorts of groups that find themselves quote quote punished. Correct. By not getting by not getting spots in the yeah. in the admissions. Is that more or less? Yeah. What you basically had was um, um, students for fair admissions were arguing that both North Carolina, well North Carolina in particular. Um, it was argued violated the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment. Um, and with Harvard, the way the case was initially presented to the court, because Harvard is a private institution, um, uh, whether or not Harvard violated, uh, title six of the 1964 civil rights act, what the Supreme court ended up doing, um, in deciding these two cases is they merged them. Um, and uh, the vote um, was six to three in both cases. Um, and this, uh, these two cases were two of the, I believe, five for the term NIA um, that split on the conservative liberal divide, if you five will. Five out of? Uh, 58. Yeah. Okay, so 10%. Yeah, okay. Um, I think people think the court's way more divided. Divided than that. Than that. Um, we're going to talk about that about at that. some point. Yeah, we're going to talk our, about In our stats episode. Yeah, in our statistics episode. Um, but uh, the majority opinion um, uh, was written by uh, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, uh, it, as far as I'm aware, this is a novel, is it not? Uh, yes. It's okay. novel so, length writing <laughs> oh well it's the novel. entirety of the... okay but it's novel in a number of ways first of all for listeners who really don't know the supreme court has ruled previously on the constitutionality of university affirmative action programs as far back as 1978 all right so in 1978 in the Bakke versus board of regents of uh, the university of california the court in a five to four vote and the only justice who was in the majority, okay, in all issues of the case was Justice Lewis Powell. The court said um, um, uh, strict racial quotas were unconstitutional, but race could be a consideration, one of many considerations that universities could uh, use in making emissions decisions. Well, that makes sense that you wouldn't want to make it a quota because then you have to deny you, people who are, who are, who would be perfectly good students and, and recruit people who might not be good students or students. as good as yeah, students. Yeah. Okay. So I can see where they would say you would want to make it a factor, not the factor. Yeah. That determines admission. The Supreme Court, uh, two other times after Bakke, went ahead and maintained um, uh, uh, what the court um, uh, said in that first case, um, 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 saying that, again, um, strict numerical quotas or giving point advantages for one group versus other groups was unconstitutional, 
but that race could be one of many variables taken into consideration when making emissions decisions. And the two subsequent cases that I'm referring to is uh, 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 Gruder versus Bollinger, and then um, uh, uh, the Fisher versus University of Texas case, okay? But nevertheless, okay, the issue was not going away, and the court held um, that um, uh, both UNC's affirmative action program and Harvard's violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, now, the other unique feature that, Nia, you just made reference to is that the number of pages of opinions totaled slightly, gazillion. A to gazillion. slightly over 240. Or 240, yeah. 240. Uh, okay. I mean, guys, that's book length. Yeah. And if, and that's if you what want, I mean by a novel. Uh, yes. wrote and and wrote and if you want to if you want to know why some of these cases, and again, these two take cases forever. Ever, okay. They're writing a book. Okay, they're writing a book. Right? <laughs> that's a fair point. Okay. I mean, the oral arguments in these two cases were heard the last day of October 2022. Okay. Who wrote now, the most pages? Uh, Sotomayor did in her dissent. How many? 69. 69 pages of dissent. I mean, the, the, uh, you are wrong for the following reasons. Okay. Page 69. Uh, and I've actually broken out the pages because this is the kind of thing that I do because I'm a Supreme Court geek, right? Yeah, you're kind uh, of a goob. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're a lovable goop. <laughs> Thank you. Know. Thank you, Nia. <laughs> um, the next time I go up for promotion, I'll make sure that um, your Nia letter. Says not, I'm not just a goop. I'm a lovable. Oh, okay. Yeah, make sure you, your for, your letter is the first in my promotion package. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you lead off with that sentence. Okay. Um, so the majority opinion by Roberts was 40 pages. Clarence Thomas's concurrence was 58. Neil Gorsuch's concurrence was 25. Brett Kavanaugh's was eight. Okay, I barely took a sip of coffee and I was done with that one. Okay, Sotomayor's was 69 and Brown Jackson's was 29 pages. <laughs> and Sotomayor and Jackson were wrote dissents. Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. And Elena Kagan didn't write anything. She did not write anything. And oh, neither, that's, did, neither did Coney Barrett. Yeah, that's all right. But uh, by the way, don't worry for uh, you Elena Kagan fans. Um, she, when she's we, got your back. She'll yeah, get you yeah. When, 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 when we discuss the, uh, uh, the uh, challenges to the Biden administration student loan forgiveness program, um, she's got you. Um, and <laughs> she wrote a lot, right? Okay. Um, so. To, so to, is the theory here that the universities didn't show that that you need diversity in order to have a like they couldn't show where remember okay. the case we talked about with where a business has to prove that there would be damage to the business if they allowed the exception. It was the religion case from last 
Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 versus DeJoy. Is yeah. it something similar where they had to show there would be a diminishment of the university if they did not have the policies in place that they currently have? It, well, that's and very close. And they couldn't show that? Is that what? Well, well, well it's very close. Okay. okay. Uh, what's at issue um, when the Supreme Court looks at uh, challenges to government policies for violating the Equal Protection Clause? Uh, listeners, go back to um, uh, our podcast episode where we discussed tests, because the tests, when the government uses race as a classification, is known as strict scrutiny. Okay? Right. And strict scrutiny has two parts to the test. The government has to show that, one, using race furthers a compelling interest, two, the program created to further that interest is narrowly tailored. And according to Roberts, both UNC and Harvard failed both parts of the test. So, Nia, you mentioned the justification for affirmative action programs offered by universities. They want to produce a diverse student body. And Robert's majority opinion um, took both UNC and Harvard to the woodshed because they couldn't identify how to measure a diverse student body. In his words, okay, how do you go ahead and show that your program is producing a diverse student body when you refuse to go ahead and say, what is a, a diverse student body, All right? Right, and it's really hard to define, in fairness to universities, yeah. it is hard to define why you would want, I mean, like we just say, well, because it's a good thing. And we know it's, we instinctively know it's a good thing, but it's really hard to explain why it's a good thing to have a diversity of thought and a diversity of opinion on campus. And some of that, comes from racial background, some of it comes from ethnic and religious and gendered background. Like all of that mixed together creates a group of people who can, when it's working well, force you to think about opinions other than your own and force you to explore ideas that you had not come into contact with. And then it will be beneficial. But it didn't sound to me like the universities made that argument very well in the original during the oral, the oral arguments. arguments. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, for those of us who either listened to the oral arguments or read the transcripts of the oral arguments, we were shocked, okay, by the difficulty um, the lawyers for both universities, but particularly for Harvard, had in answering questions well, what's the benefit? And how do you measure a diverse right. student body? Right. And how do you measure the benefit? Yeah. Okay. And then the second part of the test, is it narrowly tailored? Well, what the universities got originally challenged for was that the effect of their policies generally harmed Asian American students. And Roberts really honed in on this in his majority opinion. He came out and said, okay, but you guys are using racial classifications that make 
certain races and groups negatives as it relates to their admissions application, but others positive. But many of these classifications just don't make sense. Most colleges and universities rely upon the federal government's um, um, uh, racial classification system, right? Okay. And Nia, you and I are familiar with it because we've poured through census documents, right? Right. But these are classifications that, as many scholars across disciplines, right, both liberal and conservative scholars have gone ahead and said, many of these classifications don't make sense, right? So, you know, if if you use, let's use Asian Americans, right? Oh, way the, it's the way, way too big a... It's a way too big of a category. It's both... Right. Over inclusive and under inclusive at the, at same, the same time, time. right? Yes, it okay. It's uniquely awful. Okay, it, a way to try to describe, um, even something like um, an entire uh, region of the Earth's. Folks. Okay, you know what's wrong with you? You can't or or Latino, right? Right. It it covers Which, not, not only Central and South America, but it also covers Spain. Okay. Well, and, and Latina versus Hispanic versus like there's all kinds okay. of, and okay. that didn't even appear in the in the federal census until the 1950s, right? So like before yeah. that, we just didn't count those folks. Yeah, it's it's a well, and and if you, uh, oh, the census, I, full okay, of confusion. Okay, so Roberts was but like using those yeah. categories would would be he was just like think, that's not narrowly tailored. Okay. And also, doesn't it get into weird stereotyping of what you think? You know, oh, well, we want lots of Asian students because they do really well in school. That's quite the broad stereotype you have there. Not, And it's, ne and it's quite negative because those of us, okay, who have, you know, you know, taking training sessions, gone to institutes, as we are, you know, told, you know, many Asian American students, okay, don't fit that stereotype. Right. Okay. And they feel enormously Enormous pressured. pressured. And they're first gen and their families, okay, don't right. don't know how to support college students like families across racial groups where students are first generation, right? So you got these negative stereotypes. You are basically assuming that everybody within those broad categories, okay think the same way or bringing the same, if you will, cultural experiences to the university. Which, you know, which, there are 46 countries in Africa. Yes. I mean, hello, and, there's and no such thing as an yeah. African. Like, And you're you, putting together those from African countries with um, the Caribbean. Right. And then um, Africa, African-Americans born and raised in the United States. And as we've discussed at length in the uh, uh, in regards to the United States, and which African, part? yeah, yeah, which part of the United States, right? Right. Okay. So yeah, I can okay. see where using that as a determining factor would could be very detrimental to certain groups, and it also implies um, one of the complaints about I should say about affirmative action in general is that it implies that there is a need for that. In certain and, and 
I think that there is a need for a an even playing field for young people as they're going through school, not necessarily college, but but when they're younger, you know. And some some folks don't get that, and some folks do. But I personally think it has a whole lot more to do with class than it well, does with race. Uh, poor white kids in poor in rural schools are as underprepared for college as poor black kids in rural schools. You know what I mean? Like it's a yeah, and and and, and we're gonna get to that when we talk about what's next. At the end of our discussion of these two uh, cases, the third point that Roberts really honed in on, on why both UNC and Harvard's affirmative action programs um, fail the Equal Protection Clause, is that neither university could identify in their written briefs or their oral arguments when affirmative action would end. Right. A common complaint of of that sort of open-ended idea is when do you because when according, has the playing yeah. field been evened? Because according to Roberts, the Supreme Court continued with allowing affirmative action in colleges and universities, because in the Grutter versus Bollinger case, Justice O'Connor's majority opinion said, I think the case was decided in 2003, she said well, within 25 years, we will no longer need affirmative action. Well, when the justices asked both universities, well, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're only about five years out here, so where's the end point? And they refused to identify where the end point is, which, yeah. really, which really troubled the majority because the majority is just like, we are allowing an exception to what we said in Brown versus Board of Education, which is that you can't use race to, to divide people, okay, in the educational setting, okay? We've only allowed this exception because we were told by you all that at some point in time, you will have achieved a diverse student body, okay, and we will no longer need affirmative action. So where's that endpoint? Okay, um, and, and again, this is a really good example of something you and I have discussed in previous podcast episodes about the Supreme Court. The justices will put stuff in their opinions, okay, that can be used in the future against you even though you won that first case right okay um and you know we've talked about it in the previous podcast episode in regards to uh justice roberts majority opinion in the moore versus harper north carolina redistricting case where he went ahead and rejected the independent state legislative uh theory but at the same time, made it very clear to state Supreme Courts, if you don't don't, don't use, get out over your state. Yeah, if you don't use your authority correctly, we will come down hard on you. Yeah. Okay. I, I have to admit, this case is hard for me. Oh, it's really difficult for me because, because there's a part of me that that believes that there should be 
an aspect of forcing diversity because otherwise you might get institutions that go back to being mostly male, mostly white, white. mostly yes. upper class. Like, class. I mean, yes. think about what Harvard's original student body looked like, right? Yeah, I mean, and UNC for that matter, not just picking on Harvard, UNC's original student body was male, white, well to do. Oh, yes. Keeping out huge numbers yes. of people yes. who would have helped. When you have that diversity on campus, I mean, I have trouble articulating why I love VCU, except I say because of the diversity of thought on campus, right? Like it's a one of the things we pride ourselves on at VCU is that concept. And so I, I, it's hard for me because I understand where the students are saying yes, but it causes harm to other when you when you take someone you're not taking someone else, and so there is harm done to that group of people. Yeah, this case, is and if you base yeah, it in yeah. race, that's yeah. really complicated, right? Yeah, th th this case is difficult for me because. In the entirety of the time that I've been a college professor, Nia, um, uh, you know, I've taught, you know, diverse students, right? Um, and I like that. Right. right. Neither one of us went to institutions where that was not a thing. Yeah. And um, and I like that. And there are plenty of those institutions. Okay. Um, um, you know, as a professor, um, you know, I, I want to teach a diverse student body. Okay. But what the court is saying is, the way you guys have been doing it no longer cuts it. Now, I'm going to briefly summarize the other opinions, right? Thomas's concurrence, he joined Robert's majority opinion. So he had no problem with Robert's majority opinion, but he wanted to add this. He thought that all forms of discrimination based on race, including affirmative action, are prohibited under the Constitution. Okay. And once again, Clarence Thomas. Okay, who by all accounts benefited from affirmative action, came out and criticized what he thought were the really negative effects of such discrimination for those who received affirmative action slots. Okay, um, he believes, and he went into great detail how he thinks, okay, that uh, affirmative action programs actually are bad for the beneficiaries of the program. Okay. Okay. Gorsuch. Gorsuch, while he agreed with the majority opinion, basically concluded that the affirmative action programs, okay, could have been declared illegal, not unconstitutional, illegal because he thought that both of them violated Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I want to see somebody arrest Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> or UNC. Actually, no, I'd rather see No, 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 no. Okay, okay. But uh, <laughs> according to Department of Education regulations, you don't get arrested. You know what happens? You don't get money. You don't get money. And they as cut as, off the money. Which, and as far as universities are concerned. They'd rather be arrested. <laughs> yeah, that's a worse fate, right? Um, Kavanaugh, I got to admit, I read his concurrence and I was just like, he spent eight pages and he basically just came back to the same point. He said that the court in the Grutter decision, okay, um, uh, 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 said that affirmative action 
okay, had to end within 25 years, okay, um, and that the court rejected that there was a permanent justification for racial preferences. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, That's why he only wrote eight pages. Yeah. All right. Basically, he could have written, I agree. Yes. Now, the two dissents. Whew. Sotomayor. Wow. She read way, that from the bench. Yeah. But by the way, he was like, everybody sit down. I have 68 pages to read to y'all. By the way, I was following the day these opinions were announced by the court. I was following all of this on SCOTUS blog, right? And both Thomas and Sotomayor read excerpts from their opinions. Ah. And they went on for a long period of time, right? She read from the bench, okay? She said, the court's ruling undercut the purpose of the Equal Protection Clause, which was equality, okay? Right, to create, create a state of equal, equal access. access. That's right. Um, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, yeah, that was, we, that's the point of trying to do this is to create equal access. Yeah, because we don't have equality. Right. We're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. And it right. was, I think, just Justice uh, O'Connor's 25 year was optimistic. I think it was aspirational. Okay. Or asp okay. yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. go with aspirational. Yeah, yeah we aspire to this, right? Yeah. But, if but that I mean, if you ask your average folk, are we there yet? They will say no. No, right? It was aspirational. The only problem is the supporters for affirmative action, okay, were like, hey, Grutter's a great decision. Yeah, but. Ooh, put a ooh, timeline on you. You have to meet the timeline. You're not you meeting meet, the timeline. But you're yeah. not meeting the timeline, right? Okay. Um. Uh, and then she just went ahead and said, and then she went into great detail about how she thought both uh, the both university programs complied with both the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment and title six of the 1964 civil rights act um justice jackson's dissent uh by all accounts by the way i i enjoyed reading brown jackson's d dissent but it was light on the law and it was heavy on the rhetoric and i got a quote can I read the quote? I wish you would, because I really like this quote. Our country has never been colorblind. Given the lengthy history of state-sponsored race-based preferences in America, to say that anyone is now victimized if a college considers whether that legacy of discrimination has unequally advantaged its applicant, fails to acknowledge the well-documented intergenerational transmission of inequality it still plagues our citizenry. Okay. Um, well said. Well said. Um, and it's very characteristic of those who argue that there is still systemic racism in the United States, that it's hardwired into the system, our system, and the institutions that are key to, okay, perpetuating that system, like higher education. education. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and I see that's why it's hard because there's yes. there is there are points to be made on both sides. I'm afraid I have to say that I come down with Sotomayor and 
and Brown Jackson. Yeah. Um, but I also understand the the courts saying, yes, but what's the end what's the end date? And if you can't prove this is a good, if you can't prove it's doing good, yeah. then why should we allow it? Basically, that's what they're saying is if you can't prove that this is actually doing what you say it's doing, then why should we allow the the exception to the equal protection clause? Yeah, and there's a there is a quote in Robert's majority opinion where he actually calls out UNC and Harvard. And these were Robert's words for, in effect, saying, trust us. And Robert said we can't continue to trust you when you can't explain to us what diversity means or is and when will it end okay and it was a stunning okay part of robert's majority opinion cuz hardly ever do supreme court opinions call out the legal arguments made by parties in the case and he goes yeah you're in effect asking us to trust, you know, you guys are saying, trust us. We can't because you guys can't tell us, okay, what is the compelling interest and when will it be achieved? Okay. Um, again, I'm really divided. This is one of those cases to where I'm really divided. Hence why we have spent the first half hour of this episode yeah. on these two cases. The others, by the way, are not going to be quite this long, folks. Yeah. Okay. But it's because this is, and this is dear to us because it's higher education, but it's also super complicated. Yeah. We want everyone here to be happy and satisfied, and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And in going forward, and I've been asked this um, uh, by uh, um, in, in a couple press interviews, what I think is going to happen next. The universities have a couple choices. One, they could try to find race-neutral ways to create a diverse student body. And a previous comment, Nia, that you made um, in this podcast episode touches upon that, um, focusing on socioeconomic status and or, you know, zip codes. Right. Okay. Um, um, there was something else in Robert's majority opinion where he said that the court's ruling, um, does not, uh, restrict or deny universities by looking at what students describe about their life experiences in the ubiquitous college application essays. So now there will be an essay on on diversity, <laughs> your diversity experience or your adversity. Right. Okay. There'll okay. be a, another essay, folks. If you thought there were not enough essays you were writing before, there will be another one yes. that will, that yeah. will, that will talk about it. Give us a diversity statement. Yeah. And that's where I think we're going to see future challenges. I, as I univers- think that's exactly what universities are going to do. Yeah. And, and, and as universities respond, Okay, you're going to have groups like, you know, you know, students for fair, you know, admissions who are going to be like, okay, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. are these actually race neutral? Well, and um, not to throw a, a, a monkey with a wrench into this conversation, Richard. but here we go. Um, 
chat GPT will start writing people's essays. Oh, yes. Oh. And it will be an atrocity. It will be an atrocity. <laughs> like the whole the, the whole essay aspect of getting into college. Already people were cheating and having other people write them. Yes. But now they will have chat GPT write it. Oh, it's oh. a lot of drama. Oh, yeah. But let's go to something that's that's also dramatic. Um, Where do you want to go next, Nia? I want to go to 303 Creative. Okay. So 303 Creative versus Alanis. Uh, this is a case. Um, Again, divided 6-3. It was divided 6-3. Um, in fact, uh, all these cases in this podcast episode were divided 6-3, and they were the only five of the term, I believe, <laughs> that were divided 6-3 on purely ideological uh, 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 lines. Um, in this case, um, an artist um, um, in Colorado declined to design a website for a same-sex wedding, stating that it was against her religious beliefs to do so. Um, um, Colorado had a public accommodation law that prohibited uh, uh, discrimination against various protected classes, including same-sex couples. And the court had to decide whether or not this law violated the free speech clause of the First Amendment by compelling okay, uh, the artist to speak or stay silent. And Nia, how did the court rule? I'm assuming that they that they ruled in favor of three of in favor of the designer. Yes. Yep. That they have the yep. First Amendment right not to create this website, not to use their speech. That's right. Right, because freedom of speech is you have the freedom to speech, right, to speak, or to not not speak. speak. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think people forget that there is the freedom to silence as well, yes. which is not the same as the fifth. I don't want to convict myself, right? That's a yes. different kind of silence. Yes, but the these sort of, um, you yeah, know, you you have there choice. are protests where everybody just stands in silence, mm -hmm. or you get up and you turn your back. Yes. That's free speech, even mm -hmm. though you're not saying anything. You're by your silence, you are making a statement. Yes. Okay. And I remind students when I teach civil rights and civil liberties, constitutional law, civil rights, civil liberties, when we discuss freedom of speech, I said, you know, I always remind them, remember, guys, this is the freedom to speak or not. And they're like, you're guaranteed a right not to speak. And I said, yes, because in many authoritarian regimes, okay, people are forced to speak. In favor of the government, right. in favor of particular policies, in favor of particular candidates, right? Right. In the United Putin, States, he's my favorite. I mean, because if else, he's not, you're going to the gulag. Yeah, you're going. Right. Yeah, you're going to jail, right? Ask Navalny. Yes. How it goes when you say something, you know, against him. Okay, so there were there were two parts to Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion. The first is. Um, whether or not um, creating wedding websites, okay, was artistic speech. And Gorsuch said, yes, 
And he said, a lot of these cases going forward in the future will be about courts trying to decide whether or not a particular business, okay, is artistic speech. Right. Because some businesses will go ahead and say, I'm well, not going to, I'm not going to rent tables and chairs for a gay wedding. Okay. That's not artistic speech. speech. That's a table and chair. Chair. That's furniture. That's right. Right. I, okay. I can see where that's going to be an interesting thing for the courts to have to decide what is speech figure out what and it, what, what is, is not. Right. But he said in this case, that was easily answered because both the woman who wanted this business and the state of Colorado conceded that creating websites for weddings was artistic. Is creative speech. Yeah, is creative speech, right? Okay. But he said then So that at, was easy. Yeah, he said that was the easy part. <laughs> Though he readily acknowledged a lot of the cases going forward are, are going to be, be about that. But whether or not somebody's an artist or not, right? Um, because this case is kind of sort of the companion case to what was it four or five years ago, the masterpiece cake uh wedding cake case. Um, where the court on very narrow ground said the state of Colorado showed animus towards the cake maker because he was Christian. I mean, so they faulted the process, not the law. Right. And it was a very narrow decision. In this case, however, Gorsuch, writing for the majority, said, okay, um, the the website designer was basically being forced to speak in ways she didn't want to because she would be forced to create webs we, wedding websites okay for an activity that she sincerely believes violates her religious beliefs. So it was compelled speech. If she wanted to go forward with this business, okay, she would be forced to engage in speech that she disagreed with. Or she would have to pay some sort of fine or there would uh, all be a violation against her business. Like, like uh, 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 right? Because no, uh, yeah. she was going to be prosecuted for not yeah, for discrimination. She, yeah, she would have to go. She would have to pay a fine. She would have to go through um, uh, training um, in regards to um, uh, discrimination, discrimination training, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the Colorado's public accommodation law is is one of the more specific and thorough in the entirety of the United States. And in uh, fairness, laws like that are getting at the question of if anybody saw the movie The Green Book, right? Like getting. Getting yes. at the question of when can a business deny you based on a protected class? And back in the day, it was protected class of race, yes. right? Having to go around to the back to get your food yeah. or not being allowed. I mean, Hattie McDaniel had to come into the back of the of the of ballroom the, at the, the Hollywood, right, yeah. in order to get her yeah. Oscar for crying out loud, right? Like, so it's trying to prevent that crap. Um, 
so this is a different protected class because this is yeah. protected based on um sexual orientation or preference right yes. which is a protected class mm-hmm. yeah um so that was but worse. trying to prevent that the, the yeah. law is trying to prevent that sort of thing thing that's right and this person is saying but wait this law is too draconian in the sense that there should be an exception for people who don't want to yes to not to provide lodging food like the things that are not considered artistic but not to provide their artistic effort yeah yeah and gorsuch said right basically it's only about artists it's not about hotels cannot jump up here and say we are not no. going to host no. yep. gay weddings like they that can't do that because yeah yeah, I mean, he, owning a hotel is not an artistic endeavor, no matter yeah. what Trump may tell you about Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, like, yeah, and and he had a number. Okay, that was a dig that was unnecessary. Okay, but, but anyway. he, you know, Gorsuch had a number of examples in his majority opinion. You know, it would be like you know forcing, you know, a Jewish filmmaker to make a, a movie um, um, uh, uh, the, in support of the Nazis. Right. Okay. Um, you know, he, he goes. You can't do that, okay? That's compelled speech, okay? Now, Sotomayor, writing for the dissenters... She looked uh, down and said, I am standing at the edge of a slippery slope. Yes, uh, she did make uh, uh, the classic slippery slope argument. She basically accused the court of opening the door to other businesses discriminating against protected classes of individuals. Um, and, And there is a fear within the LGBTQ plus community that this kind of ruling gives Supreme Court, if you will, protection to, right. okay, that kind of discrimination. And okay. not, uh, not without reason. Yes. Not without reason to have that fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. According to Sotomayor, all the Colorado law did was impose a requirement that businesses could not discriminate. She didn't think speech was being compelled. Okay. Um, and that's I, tough. Isn't it, it? it is tough because I would go ahead and argue we ask have, any web designer if what they do is speech, and they speech. would probably say yes. Yes, okay. And you ask them if it's a creative endeavor, they would definitely well, say, say yes, right? Um, and 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 I'm also uh, that kind of narrowing it. Okay, I'm just kind of sort of like, I, again, only for a brief period of time was I, you know, a quote unquote artist. Okay, you know, a, a high school bar band of my youth. Okay. But, you know, there were a lot of decisions, creative and otherwise, that we would not want the government to have imposed upon us, right? right? From the songs that we played, to how we played them, to how we dressed, okay, to what venues we played, okay? I mean, so, again, this This is is another one of those those tough— Yeah, this is a difficult case because I'm extremely sympathetic. Okay, to um, you know, I, I, I consider myself an ally uh, of the LGBTQ plus community. Okay, uh, I don't think businesses, okay, should be able to go ahead and discriminate against them any more that they than they can discriminate against people who are Jews or people who are, you know, brown or black. 
okay, against right. women versus men. I, I, I mean, I, 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 but part of me wants to say, why would you want this crazy woman's website anyway? Yes. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Oh, wow. That just showed my <laughs> yes, Sorry. And uh, she may make lovely websites, yeah. but I would never hire her because she doesn't have, she does not share my value system. Yeah. Which is you celebrate love wherever you find it because there's so little in the world, right? Yes. Like, yeah. dude, if two people want to commit themselves to a, a life of, you know, marital bliss slash fury, then good for them. That's wonderful. And more of that. So I would just, I personally would walk away and not give her my business and tell everybody I know not to give her their, my, their business and hope that my friends would say, Oh, okay, well, I'll just find somebody else to do. I mean, like, but anyway, yeah. So, I mean, it's but a, I can see where that yeah. person is like, you shouldn't be allowed to compel me to do this. Mm-hmm. I can, I can see her side too. I don't agree with her personally on her moral issue, but I agree with her on the legal issue of the state should be very careful about what it compels, especially artists, right? Yeah, because I mean, then you're getting into dictatorship. You will make films that support the state or else. And right. as, we've seen that in history, and we've seen what that, what happens with that. And it, as Gorsuch pointed out in his majority opinion, I mean, the Supreme Court's been very consistent in protecting um, unpopular speech, right? Right. Okay. I mean, right. Uh, and, right. Okay. I mean, her, she's unpopular. She can have an, what I consider to be an unpopular or incorrect moral opinion, but she has the right to it. Yeah, and and, and and I must defend her right to it because otherwise I don't have the right to my opinion. Yeah, that's how she, that works. I mean, if she chooses to express it through her website designs, okay. Then I mean, I have to respect that. I mean, other people write books. Other people are journalists. Other people are you know, musicians. Other well, people it, make films. You know, and you know, some of us do podcasts. And civil discourse is understanding that other people are allowed to have their opinions and thoughts and ideas. Yeah, and, and I can not, choose, and I can choose to reject them. Right, but I have with, to do it politely. Yeah, you know, and I can choose to reject them um, by, you know, you know, as you pointed out. Okay, find another website designer. Okay, um, who perhaps doesn't hold those. Yeah, in <laughs> capitalism, the ultimate. <laughs> The ultimate rejection is I will spend my money elsewhere. Oh, yeah, my goodness, yes. You, you know. Hmm. So, hey, do I have to pay my student loans? Um. Uh, <laughs> well, um. Uh, after Actually, this, that was never in question. After, after. It was never in question that people would have to pay people who had more than whatever the allotment, which I think was $10,000 and then okay. maybe some extra money for people were always going to have to pay the rest of their student loans. Yeah. This was never a question of we were just going to wipe out all student loans in the United States. Yeah. While so, that would be marvelous, that was never in question. Yeah. So what uh the last two cases that we're gonna discuss, <laughs> excuse me, are the two um challenges to the Biden administration's um student loan forgiveness program, as Nia just described. Uh, there were two parts to the student loan forgiveness uh, program. Um, the, the first part was that an individual could be forgiven 
uh, for $10,000 of what they owed. Uh, part two, if they received uh, federal government financial assistance in addition to their student loans, um, they could be forgiven up to $20,000, right? Um, and the uh, program, um, um, uh, the lowest estimate that I came across was that, um, uh, and this was what the federal government conceded, was that the cost of the program over 10 years would be at least $460 billion. Yeah, that's starting to be money. That's some real jack at that point, right? But nevertheless, um, uh, the two cases were Bind versus Nebraska and uh, the Department of Education versus uh, Brown. I'm going to handle the last one first, Department of Education versus Brown. Um, that case was dismissed by the court because the court in a unanimous decision found that Brown and one other student or one other person who had a student loan um, could not demonstrate that they had standing. They could not show that the loan forgiveness program caused them any injury. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, the majority opinion by Alito uh, was quite brief. And as somebody who's read a lot of Supreme Court opinions here in the last couple uh, uh, weeks, I was so happy about that. It was like all of <laughs> all of 19 pages, right? Awesome. I barely had a time, uh, had enough time to finish eating a sandwich. Okay. And I was just like, okay, we're done. Right. Um, so those folks were denied standing. However, uh, Biden versus Nebraska. This was the challenge, Nia, that six states brought, claiming that the student loan forgiveness program was going to harm them. And in particular, um, uh, the main party was actually the state of Missouri. Okay. Missouri has a government corporation that manages all the student loans for all of the uh, residents of Missouri. All right. And they make money on this enterprise. Okay. And um, they went ahead and claimed that they would lose nearly $44 million a year in fees if the loan forgiveness program um, was deemed by the court as legal. All right. So the vote, six to three. <laughs> Conservatives versus liberals. Uh, again, we've covered actually all five, or we covered four out of the five, okay? Because uh, the uh, Department of Education versus Brown was a unanimous decision. Um, but um, liberal or conservatives versus liberals, the majority opinion was written by Roberts. First of all, he said Missouri did have standing uh, because its government corporation was created by the state of Missouri. Um, and generates economic benefit for the state, the fees. And by the way, um, and I'm kind of sort of jumping ahead. Kagan wrote the uh, dissent in this case, and she didn't. And she didn't think that Missouri had standing. But I was really confused because the Supreme Court has said that 
federal government corporations are a part of the federal government. United States Postal Service, Amtrak, Tennessee Valley Authority. Okay. So how in this case was did she arrive them at not being yeah I, I at not being part of the state. And I she separated the two, didn't she? she yeah, said, she yeah. She they, said that the state corporation is not part of the state. Yes. And therefore the state cannot show harm. Yes, they cannot show how the state of Missouri yeah, was we actually disagree with Justice Kagan on that. And and I and I reread that pass that section of Kagan's dissent multiple times, and I still couldn't understand how she got there. But nevertheless. The part that you made reference just a few moments ago, according to the Supreme Court, the Biden administration student loan program, student loan forgiveness program is illegal. Why? Okay. Well, the Biden administration said that their legal authority for the loan forgiveness program was the infamous Heroes Act from 2003. Now, Nia, you and I are very familiar with this law. Because this was one of the post 9-11 series flurry of legislation passed by Congress, right? Where Congress gave the Department of Education the authority to waive or modify any student loans of first responders to the 9-11 attacks or anybody who was tasked by their government to respond. Right. You're in an emergency, right? Now, those of us who have some background in Homeland Security, we're like, hey, this is a great law because this benefits a whole bunch of people who might have to stop their educations because they go to war or they end up spending like nine months responding to a hurricane or a, a biochemical attack, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right? And it would harm those people. It would, yes, right. But the Biden administration went ahead and said, "Well, we have a pandemic. That's an and emergency. It's an emergency, right? It's a national emergency." And yeah. Roberts' majority opinion said, "We're not persuaded that that was the purpose of the Heroes Act." And moreover, we're not persuaded that words like waived or modified were intended by Congress to include a student loan forgiveness program that would cost at least $460 billion. Well, and would affect people who, in fact, were not first responders. Like, yes. If, yeah. they, if they had said we are going to waive first responders and we are going to define them as as nurses police officers people who were essential workers during yeah covid they might have gotten away with it this court might have said okay or we or at least or at least said you categorizing those people or at least said to the Biden administration you can't offer this program to all Americans? To unilateral, right. It okay. was unilateral. Anybody but, who had a federal loan. Okay, but those with federal loans who do X, 
could right who to, who are teachers who are yeah. nurses who are right like okay but that right. wasn't the argument made by the Biden administration the argument no. made by the Biden administration was we have this law we have this authority now and i'm going to say something that i think will be wildly unpopular with some of our listeners which is that this is an example of presidential power grab oh yes and yeah. and often presidents get away with it because the congress is either distracted looking in another direction watching tiktok on their phones whatever it is they're doing yeah actually, like a, yeah, actually a, a, those people are never watching tiktoks on their phone but whatever you know they're, it's like a dog in a backyard squirrel, right yeah, they're, yeah, they're chasing yeah, they're, a squirrel and they're not yeah. paying attention yeah. or or they're of the same party and they like what the president has done yes it just so happens that this particular power grab happened at a time in history when the congress is wildly divided and, and one of the houses and, and the house is rabidly against this president like and, and moreover it also happened in a period of time where the supreme court is very skeptical of broad um uh, executive branch claims of power right right and and um and this is the third part of roberts majority opinion roberts once again you know used the major questions doctrine and i spoke about the major questions doctrine um in a lecture that i gave at the wilder school last fall their lunch and learn um monthly lecture series and i even predicted that the court would use the major questions doctrine in any challenges to the Biden administration student loan forgiveness program. Because the major questions doctrine basically says that if the executive branch is going to issue regulations, create a new program that has a major impact on the government or the nation's economy, then the executive branch needs to have clear legal authority right. from Congress to do so. And according to Roberts, there was nothing from Congress that would suggest this. In fact, Nia, as you just pointed out, the House of Representatives okay, earlier this year in 2023 passed a bill that would have denied the Biden administration from going forward with the student loan forgiveness program. It got enough support in the Senate, okay, from quote unquote moderate Democrats, including Joe Manchin, uh, the uh, um, uh, senator, uh, formerly a Democrat, now an independent, Kirsten Cinema, and the Biden administration had to veto it. Right. right. So there is so, not there was not congressional support for this, which even Elena Kagan in her dissent said yes that there would need to that that it would be up to Congress to rein it in, and Congress did try to rein it rein in. it in. So uh, this can't be a big surprise to folks. If you're disappointed, I'm I'm sorry, but this can't be a big surprise that this didn't fly. Yeah, uh, it it was an overreach. I mean, I I'm. I would love to have had $10,000 of my student loans forgiven. Um, but 
it was an overreach. And I said it was an overreach from the beginning. You and I talked about that, that if they had set the, maybe if they had set the threshold lower and they had said, you know what, anybody who is making $35,000 or less or $40,000 or less, and they're working in social work or nursing or whatever, where we need those people. Yes. Let's pay off those people's students, student loans. So they don't have to struggle or, or they set it at some ridiculously high, yeah, in one hundred fifty thousand dollars a person, or some like what? What? Yeah, I mean, for me, if they had narrowed it to specific people in specific occupations, right, that were necessary to respond to the pandemic, teachers, nurses, <sighs> you know, you know, you know, rural uh, doctor, right? Like, were, you know, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I would have been all about that. Yeah, um, and I think it would have been a lot harder for people in Congress to deny that. Oh, goodness, yes. But this saying sort of everybody in the world and sort of throwing your hands in a big wide hug, that was – and cynically, because I'm Generation X, um, cynically, (laughs) I believe that that had a lot to do with elections and electioneering on Biden's part. Uh, Yeah, you and I talked about this off recording um, that um, who this would have benefited the most was a part of the population – um, that has increasingly voted for uh, the uh, candidates of the Democratic Party, right? Um, and that it was issued. Um, uh, uh, what was it? Late summer, right before the congressional midterm elections. Exactly. Um, and um, uh, and I was just like. Yeah, wow. I'm feeling a little cynical about. Yeah, that. I mean, if I if one if I was not a political scientist, and <laughs> two, if I was not your classic, you know, Gen X cynic, I would have maybe I would have been a little more, um, shall we say, objective or no, not objective. I would have been um, more willing to go ahead and sign off on what the program was trying to achieve. And and mind you, I don't deny. That, that helping means, people with their student loans is a great thing. It's a great thing. And 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 nobody's and, denying that, but and, and, this and, sort and, of and, broad, wild and, and Nia, you and I teach and work with a generation of students that is graduating with you know more significant student loan indebtedness than either you or I had. And mind you, you're still paying off your student loans. Okay. Me, it took me. I don't know, close to 18 years right. to pay off my student loans, right? I mean, you and I both, okay. Or, in it for or, the long haul. Yeah, we're in it for the long haul. We would have never achieved what we have professionally if we had not gone to college, but the way we pay for college was student loans, right? I mean, because right. neither, neither you neither or Neither of us came from money. <laughs> yeah, it came from money, right? So I'm very, again, I'm very empathetic to what, the recipients would have accrued in terms of benefits, but the way the Biden administration went about this, okay, was terrible, yeah. right? Um, and they made a promise as if they could deliver it. Yes, um, and, and that's also unfortunate because there are now people who who feel that they've been bait and switched. Yeah, and 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 if we don't like presidential administrations that we don't like engaged in these power grabs right 
okay we can't do it when people we do like like, and and, yeah and 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 i think you and i are both sort of um i would say uh, it's been a long time since i since i voted for for a president yeah so much as i voted against people Uh, i didn't want to be president yeah a particular um, you know candidate yeah right but i would like for them to all stop doing this because i would like for congress to do their job yes yeah, so and would i that yes. would be i think a marvelous thing and if congress came up with some sort of scheme of how can we work out some sort of forgiveness or something for certain people nia you and i've even talked about this off recording that you know maybe there should be some consideration in the United States for mandatory government service. Right. Okay. And if you do that, then particular benefits become available to you. Exactly. Including, okay, either a certain amount or a certain percentage of your student loan indebtedness, particularly if you make a commitment to go into certain professions in certain areas of the country. Are forgiven. Okay. Yeah, it is forgiven. Okay, if you tell me you're willing to commit to 20 years of teaching public school in uh, 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 around that rundown urban, you know, area of the United States or um, a a, a poor rural area of the United States, you're willing to be a doctor in far southwest Virginia or eastern Kentucky, okay, for the first 10 years after you get your MD. Okay. Because we need those people. Well, and we have some of that. We have the yes, public we do. service forgiveness yes. loans. Yes. Which if you're a teacher and you teach for 10 years in a nonprofit school, um, so right, not a private school, so not Harvard, but if you teach somewhere else in a private school, you can, in fact, get the rest of your loan forgiven. You have to pay a certain amount of your loan, and then the rest of it will be forgiven. Um, so there, that does exist. What he was trying to do, I think, was expand that to everyone. And I think you and I, I think you and I both agree that um, that it's a that perhaps we could have expanded the idea of public service a little bit to include maybe some of the other groups. You're on mute, Augie. Um, which I'm going to leave in the recording because we do that sometimes. Yes. Um, but it's a, uh, it, it, this was, was just everybody in the world. Yay. And that was too much for, for the courts to take and too much for the legislature to take. Yeah. So, you know, they called Biden out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so. But. Okay. Uh, so we've covered all the cases. And, um, and, and now and our next episode, episode um, we are going to look at uh, very statistics of the recently completed Supreme Court term, and uh, some general observations that both Nia and I have um, about what's going on with the Supreme Court. So, so looking forward to that discussion. Thanks, Nia. Thanks, Augie. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. 
Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.